Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Is Ubisoft exploiting a legion of watchdogs artists with Hit Record? Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we've got a fun one, I think. It's a little bit more business-oriented than law-oriented. And if you know me, if you followed this channel, if you follow Virtual Legality, you know I like Ubisoft video games. Uh, last year, 2018's Game of the Year was actually Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I think Division 2 this year is very likely to appear on that Game of the Year list. We'll see when we get to the end of the year. And in general, I've liked their approach to making video games, to evolving the ideas that they have at the outset, the first version of their video games, and evolving them through the series, uh, not dropping IP that doesn't succeed, like maybe you could accuse Electronic Arts or even Activision of doing from time to time, but taking an IP that maybe doesn't work as well as it might and evolving that idea into something better. And in this case, we're talking about one of those intellectual properties that has been evolved and something that has come up in the past few days about whether or not the process that Ubisoft is using to make this video game is fair to all the people that it's asking to help make it. And that series is Watch Dogs, in particular Watch Dogs 3, uh, which goes by the subtitle Watch Dogs Legion. And in the past few days, Ubisoft has announced, uh, like it did last year, in respect of its development of a Beyond Good and Evil sequel that is still seemingly a decade away from everything that I can tell, that it was going to use uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's hit record company uh, that essentially allows folks to submit specific pieces of art to a video game company or another person or company that's making a larger piece of art and get paid for it and get paid moderate to, to minimal amounts of money. Uh, and this has become a discussion in the video game industry, in the social media sphere that I follow, uh, because of the premise that potentially this relationship, this small amount of money that they, Ubisoft is giving out to the people that are going to make this art for them, is exploitative, is too little for somebody to actually make a living on. And that's undoubtedly the case. You wouldn't be able to make a career out of the payments that Hit Record is giving uh, on Watch Dogs Legion music that it's soliciting. But I think that's maybe tangential to the point. So let's take a look at some of the articles that have been written here that really has been covered by the entire panoply of video games media uh, from Kotaku to Polygon to Eurogamer to everywhere else that I looked when I was uh, doing some research for this video and podcast. And so I want to start with the first article that I saw in terms of timeline. And this was Game Daily Biz, uh, which again, if you follow this channel, you know I regularly contribute to Game Daily Biz. They ask me for quotes and uh, comments on legal issues. And I am Twitter friends, electronic friends with a couple of their freelance writers. Uh, and so I do uh, frequently appear uh, in their articles talking about legal issues. Not in this one, uh, so I'm going to do a video on it right now. Uh, this, this article is titled, Ubisoft's Hit Record Partnership Continues to Draw Ire for Exploitative Work. 
The French publisher is once again collaborating with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's company, this time for music on Watch Dogs Legion, and developers are calling Ubisoft out. Ubisoft first announced its partnership with Hit Record at E3 2018, when its founder, actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Inception, Third Rock from the Sun, in case you're not familiar with his work, appeared on stage to unveil a collaboration for Beyond Good and Evil 2. It seemed innocuous at first. After all, plenty of companies encourage community participation. Just look at Media Molecules games. Taking a step back from this article for a second, I think that's an excellent point, right? We have a number of games. We have an entire genre of games, really, that exists to allow folks to make things, make levels, uh, make uh, whole video games, really, inside of them, and to have that be broadcast to the world. And that's what is actually accruing value to the product itself. We are seeing this in Dreams in PlayStation 4 right now. We've seen it in Little Big Planet in the past, and we've seen it in Mario Maker 2 not a month ago uh, in respect of the Switch and the Nintendo properties. They are actually having people make levels. Those levels populate their game, and it's on that population and not just the design tools that they've provided that they sell the value of their game. Those people aren't getting any money at all, and we'll come back to that at the end of this video, but that's a very interesting kind of comment, a side note, really, at the start, the very opening paragraph of this article. But the problem for BG&E2 is that Hit Record only set aside $50,000, and that quickly led to criticism and a defense from Gordon Levitt after the initial reveal. For this one, for Watch Dogs Legions, uh, in total, the community will make 10 songs this round of the community collaboration project to pay contributors for the final pieces that we will deliver to Watch Dogs Legion's team, this is Hit Record talking, a line item of $2,000 was set aside per song. In other words, you put your song into Hit Record, if it gets picked by Ubisoft to be incorporated into Watch Dogs Legion, they will pay out $2,000, and then that $2,000 will basically be split among the various contributors to the song. If it's just you, you get the $2,000. If it's you and a vocalist, you split it up as a percentage and you figure out how that's going to be. And they have a whole process for that, which is covered in this article, which of course I will link in this description because I absolutely think you need to give these folks the clicks if you are interested in the topics discussed because they're the ones doing all the journalism. They're the ones doing the investigations here. Uh, and I highly recommend uh, that you continue to support them, especially Game Daily Biz, because they are covering the business and law topics that we discuss in virtual legality. Uh, every other day or so. Uh, continuing on with the article, a number of developers and composers would beg to differ with the, with the nice treatment that Ubisoft is putting on the hit record process and say that Ubisoft and hit record are basically taking advantage of people's ambition to get into the industry. Cadence of Hyrule composer Danny Baranowski tweeted, I know it's hard to get into video game music, but please trust me, this is not the way. With the inevitable volume of submissions, this is no better than a lottery, except you work for nothing and get nothing out of it. He added later in the thread that it actively damages the profession as a whole. Now, we've got a lot more to get through in terms of the comments from various developers and various folks on social media and a number of these articles. But I want to take a step back there because I think that last sentence is very truthful. And, and, and it's, it's what you're going to see from people that make their living freelancing, people that make their living as consultants looking for clients, having to find that next uh, salary, that next paycheck. And that's this notion that, hey, if you've got people flooding the market with what amounts to free services, yes, they're getting paid $2,000 a song, but Mr. Baranowski here doesn't feel that that's enough, then what you've got is a general pressure on the uh, supply side of the economics curve that says, hey, we're 
pricing it lower and lower and lower. Hey, I want to be a professional composer. I want to live in Los Angeles. I want to sell my services so that I'm making, you know, $50,000 to compose for you, $40,000, whatever that number might be. And if there's a bunch of people that you can go get, you can get 10 songs, which might be a quarter of my uh, composition, and you can go get it for $20,000, then that's lowering the price of what I can sell my services for. And I think that's an entirely justified stance to take. I think we have to be careful when we analyze these kinds of things and when we give uh, amplification to these kinds of concepts in articles like this and in the other articles we'll see on this video and podcast to note where people are coming from. Because at the same time that they say, hey, this is damaging to me, which is entirely fair, and you can absolutely make that statement, they go further to say that this is an immoral practice, that this is something that shouldn't be allowed. Uh, whether or not that's legally or not, they are putting uh, at least political and kind of PR pressure on the concept of Ubisoft using this. And I think it's important to understand that part of that is motivated by, hey, this lowers my pricing. This lowers my ability to myself make money in this endeavor, and that's a problem for me. It's entirely justifiable for someone in that position, but I always think it's important to note those things. And I'll also take a step back to say, hey, I'm a lawyer. I'm in a cartel. It's not by choice, uh, but the states have basically said, hey, we want to have this be a licensed profession. We think that there should be certain pieces of information that lawyers need to know. And so we're going to have a license. We're going to have a bar exam. We're going to have a fairly difficult test to pass that people are going to have to pass in order to practice law in our state. The various states around the country say, hey, maybe we'll accept the bar exam from another state. Maybe we won't. And that lowers the ability of people to generally practice law. That's one of the constant problems in modern legal practice right now is whether or not enough people have access to justice at a price that they can afford because the supply of lawyering services is artificially limited. And yes, you know, the benefit to that from a lawyer's perspective is if I'm competing against 10,000 lawyers in the state of Michigan instead of 100,000 lawyers, yeah, that price is going to go up. That's a natural function of the supply and demand curves meeting because there's always going to be that demand for legal services. If the supply goes down, that price goes up. And that's one of the reasons lawyers are expensive as they are. And it's one of the reasons that I'm involved in a number of efforts to really re-examine the kind of ethics rules and other licensing rules that prohibit access to justice in very significant ways, which is a bit of a side note, but it's important for me to point out that, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Hogue Law is a law firm that's constantly looking for clients, constantly looking for that next uh, income stream uh, to keep the lights on, to keep the family fed. And I absolutely understand this position, which is to say, even in the legal profession, you have somebody come to town and say, I'm going to offer my services for $200 less than you per hour. And I look at that and I say, well, it's going to be very difficult for you to even work out how you're going to keep your lights on or, or, or service the clients that you propose to service. That's a problem for me and I can speak out against it. But if somebody comes in and if enough people come in, then, hey, I'm lowering my rates because you have to be competitive. You have to look at the market. You have to look at what the market price is for your services. And so I think as part of this, as we evaluate this, we can decide for ourselves whether or not we think people are getting exploited, but we absolutely have to look at the fact that, yeah, there's a vested interest from these folks speaking out about keeping certain of these rates high. And that that's fine. And I think it's important uh, to allow people to have that position, but also to understand where they're coming from. Continuing, another composer, Megan Carnes, agreed, replying to Baranowski, I used to do stuff for Hit Record when I was younger, and I didn't know better. And even when things of mine ended up getting chosen and I got paid, it was nowhere near a fair amount. So yeah, basically you can either not get paid or get severely underpaid. Hooray. And you look at the quote like that and you say, all right, 
Well, to some extent, that's a bit of buyer's remorse, right? You didn't understand exactly how much work you were going to need to put into the project. And when you finally got the checkout and it was $430 and you wound up having to spend 50 hours when you didn't think it would take that long, you look at it and you say, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Believe me, I've been there. I have quoted prices out. I have clients that have quoted prices out on their services. It took a lot more time. You didn't get the money you thought you would get out of it. And that's an opportunity cost, among other things, uh, but you're unhappy with it after the fact. And I think it's fair for these folks to warn people that might otherwise submit to hit record to say, hey, I wasn't happy with it after the fact. I, if it were up to me, you wouldn't do this because I don't think you'll get out of it what you think you'll get out of it. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable position to have. Continuing on with this, you have Mike Bithell, who did Thomas Was Alone, who does volume. I follow him on Twitter. He's got a number of interesting thoughts on Twitter. He points out Joseph is in a unionized profession, which is why I can't ask him to work for free and pay him if I like what he does more than 100 other actors I ask to work for free and win the job. So he's using the fact that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is behind hit record. He is obviously in the the Screen Actors Guild. You have to do very specific things to employ him uh, for his services. And he's saying, well, I can't ask Joseph Gordon-Levitt to to do work for me. And isn't it interesting that he's helping other people essentially do work that he himself wouldn't be interested in doing, which I think is a little bit of a sleight of hand there. I don't know that Joseph Gordon-Levitt has to have the same value put on his time or put on his efforts as someone else might put on their time or efforts. And as long as there's a transparency in what's actually happening here, as long as you know, hey, the maximum amount you're ever going to get out of this is $2,000 and here you can submit it. And if we pick you, great. If we don't, okay. If you know that, if you know that going in, I'm not sure the fact that Joseph Gordon-Levitt isn't willing to enter into that same arrangement is terribly compelling, although it certainly is tangential to compelling, which is why I think it is made by Mike Bithell here and why it's quoted in Game Daily Biz. So uh, I I leave that up to you. Uh, And Mike Bithell added, it's a program that's exploitative by design and framing a job on a commercially released game as a prize and expecting a majority of that work to be done on spec, speculation for being paid, is bad for everyone. Now, that's an interesting term, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to make this video and podcast is that notion of what is exploitative. We're going to come back to that after we read at least one more article uh, kind of quoting these developers, because I think the question of what's exploitative or not, it depends on how you feel. It depends on your position in the industry, whether you're a composer like Mr. Baranowski or Ms. Carnes, and exactly what's happening here, uh, because I think it's very easy for us sitting outside or, or already being a composer in the game industry, like the previous people quoted, to say, these people shouldn't do this thing because they should value their time more. But the question always is, should they? Is it up for you to decide what somebody else should value their time at? And I obviously, just making this video and being on this podcast, have a question about that. I question whether or not you should be able to make that determination about whether someone else is being exploited. Uh, But we see here, Games Daily Biz has a number of other quotes. They have a quote from Game Workers Unite, which is, you've been following the game industry in 2019, you know, is the group that is primarily behind trying to get a lot more of the games industry unionized, and they are regularly making social media posts, they are regularly making comments about the various news stories that are coming out this year, uh, about work practices, about crunch and things like that. And they said, disgusting, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a union contract that he's peddling spec work for a billion-dollar company. The game industry exploits our passion to pay unlivable wages. This is the next logical step, soliciting unpaid labor for a product that will make 
millions. They say that's how they frame this exploitation. They spin it to be about the fans. Follow the money. Who benefits? A billion-dollar company will be selling your music in a million-dollar product. CEOs and investors will get millions in bonuses for your work while you get next to nothing. And again, that's you know great PR. They're pushing for what they believe in, which is unionization of the games industry, having these kinds of relationships be specifically prohibited, that you person who's got a music score or who has an interest in entering into a contract like hit record shouldn't be allowed to do so uh, because it's otherwise a problem for the people that are actually developing games right now. And you see that kind of being the same type of argument that the initial composing quotes that we talked about at the start of this video were about as well. They, they don't want to have the price driven down. They don't want to have people enter into these contracts because it does drive the price down and it makes life worse for the people that are actually developing the video games right now. That's the theory, at least, and that's the problem that they have. Now, they put a little bit of a gloss on it. They say that Watch Dogs Legions will be making all this money because of the presence of these 10 songs, which I think is maybe a bridge too far in terms of rhetoric. It seems unlikely that these 10 songs are going to make any difference in whether or not Watchdog Legions makes millions, which it will. Uh, if you saw the E3 demo press conference, if you saw uh, what uh, Watchdog's Legions is purporting to do, I think it's going to be a massive, massive success for Ubisoft when it launches next year. And so I think Ubisoft could easily get out of this hit record contract, say, hey, all right, we're not going to do that if so many people have a problem with it, and not affect the Watchdog's Legions sales numbers uh, at all. And as a matter of fact, you get to the bottom of this article from Game Daily Biz and it says, hey, Ubisoft can easily afford to hire talented composers. And indeed, according to the official Watchdogs Twitter account, it's already working with professionals on more than 140 licensed songs and a score. We're going to get to their quote in a second. But that's the point of why they gave that quote. Ubisoft is saying, hey, look, this is a side project. We thought it would be fun to get the community involved. This is their gloss on it. And we are already doing everything that we would ordinarily be doing for a game like this. We've got a billion licensed songs. We've got a fully scored original composition. This is just extra. And so this isn't driving anything. This isn't the driver behind the project. We're not trying to populate the entire game with this kind of stuff. We just thought it would be fun. But obviously a number of developers on social media, obviously in these articles that are being done by the press, uh, there are negative ramifications to that approach. Whether or not you agree with them is something that we're discussing on this video and podcast, but this finishes off by saying, ethics aside, it makes business sense for the company to remain in this community's good graces, i.e. the people that are commenting on it that think Ubisoft is doing something bad and exploitative. The Game Daily Bizzes, the Kotakus, the Polygons, the IGNs, the Eurogamers of the world that if they are upset about this, then maybe Ubisoft made a misstep. And to the extent that that is true, that might very well be a good argument. It, it, at some level, you're existing in a kind of real politics situation if you're making games, if you're publishing games. You have to understand the contours of the society in which you're making them. And if you are going to get this kind of negative pushback, even if something actually is in reality benign, if you actually had the best of intentions, you have to take that into account. Maybe Ubisoft comes out and says, yeah, we're fine with it. I suspect they will. I, I suspect this will ultimately blow over, and I doubt that it will make a big presence in any of the reviews that are done of Watch Dogs Legions next March. But I think for right now, it's an interesting side point. It's an interesting point for Ubisoft to take into consideration because there has been this pretty significant commentary on the internet about this issue. And after the Game Daily Biz article came out, this Kotaku article came out, I just wanted to highlight it for a second. Uh, because it's got a couple of different quotes, it's got a couple of different ideas, uh, some of which I'm going to talk about here or expound upon if I've already mentioned them on this video. Uh, and that's this notion of, of kind of autonomy. 
Uh, we say here, the core innovation in Watch Dogs Legions, this is the, game, the game's creative director at Ubisoft talking, is that you can recruit and play as anyone and bring them into your resistance and they can become the heroes of your game. When we first started thinking about this as a sort of theme, that's when we had the idea that maybe we should work with fans in the community and other players in order to add value and reflect that theme in the musical landscape of our world. That's why we went to hit record. Again, you see Ubisoft pitching this as this was uh, supposedly going to be a fun thing. This was going to be essentially a contest that you can get involved in. And we have another quote here uh, from Rami Ishmael that says, I'm still not a fan of what reads as spec work under a proprietary open non-exclusive license model and prefer the pay someone to browse SoundCloud to find cool music for which you then talk to the creator and pay them too. And maybe that is a better situation. Maybe you have Ubisoft go and scour SoundCloud and then they offer to pay the composer the, the piece $2,000 and everybody's happier. But I'm not sure that that's a more useful technique than having people actually submit to them. Uh, if you want to get seen by Ubisoft, if you want to be evaluated for uh, being added to this project. That, that being said, I can certainly understand the situation that I think most of these people are reacting to, which is this notion that people will be composing new things and not things that are already in existence on SoundCloud or on Spotify or wherever they might be kept. And that obviously $2,000 for a brand new composition made specifically for this purpose is uh, perhaps not enough money and you shouldn't necessarily be valuing your time that low. Uh, but some creators on HitRecord, quoting the Kotaku article now, don't necessarily see it that way. On this platform, we can improve and add our own ideas to some creations, such as in the studio. It was, for me, a really casual project. Uh, and that's uh, Alexis Leborn, an artist living in France who contributed to Beyond Good and Evil 2 and made about $1,000. Continuing, Denise Takes, a musician who helped create one of the game's songs titled Unite Us, didn't necessarily disagree with criticisms of the business model, but said it was the right thing for her. I'm not dismissing what someone else believes or feels. Right on, protect others, Takes told Kotaku in an email. But when discussing this subject, I think some people forget that we have personal autonomy as artists. I can't speak to what the future holds, but I can tell you is that it's helped me. It's fulfilled my life personally. I got into this fully knowing what I'd be paid. I didn't participate because of the money. I got into this because I could do it at my leisure. I could back out at any point in time, I could have contributed just one word if I wanted to. And I think as we go through this, that's really the kind of important point that I would make in this video and on this podcast, which is, I think it's a useful conversation to have about what business models are good, what business models are bad, what we as consumers of video games or other products or services in our lives should push back against, should reflect upon and say, you know, I don't really like that you're doing that. And I think of you more negatively as a company and I'm now more or less likely to purchase your product or service in the future. I think that's a totally good use of time. I think that's a good use of our brain power. But when we talk about exploitation, I think it's also important to take into account the other person on the side of this equation. You can say, hey, Ubisoft, you shouldn't be offering that. You shouldn't be entering into this relationship. But to exploit here, and I think the best definition of this, I've pulled up the Merriam-Webster site here to talk about this. The best definition for what people mean by this is number two, which I've highlighted. And that's exploit is to make use of meanly or unfairly for one's own advantage, meaning that Ubisoft is unfairly using another person's labor because they're not paying them market rates. They're not paying them enough money for their services, that it is exploitation. I think that's what most people mean when they're using the term this way. But that in order to come to that determination, you have to be able to determine what is fair to that third party. 
And I'm not sure that I'm in a position to do that. I'm not sure that Game Daily Biz, Kotaku, Eurogamer, IGN, anyone else is in a position to do that. And I think that quote that Kotaku, to their credit, put in their article is so useful to establish is these are real people. These are real people that are maybe doing this as a side hustle, maybe doing it on their own time, maybe have a piece of music in the folder somewhere that they think, hey, I really love Watch Dogs. I really love Ubisoft. It would be super cool to get in to a game like that, to have my name in the credits. I think that would be fun. And so I'm going to do that, that that's my personal situation. And if Ubisoft wants to pay me $2,000 on top of that, then in fact, that's better for me than maybe how these things used to look in the 90s or in the early 2000s, where I can recall situations where video game companies would essentially say, hey, we're holding a contest. Would you like to see your poster in our video game? Would you like to have a piece of music appear in our video game? Send it to us and we'll pick our 10 favorites and we'll get you in the game and you'll get a credit in the credits of our video game. Isn't that awesome? And that used to be a thing. And I guess the question that I would have for people that are making these articles, that are making these comments is, would your preference be that there was no payment at all? Does this look better to you if Ubisoft isn't working with HitRecord, but is instead just saying, hey, send us music, send us art, and we'll pick our 10 favorites and we'll put them in the game? Because obviously the 10 favorites are not the driver of what's going on here. I've pulled up the IGN article, which had mostly the same quotes as the Game Daily Biz and Kotaku article, but to show the tweet that Ubisoft made in response here and to talk about what their comments were here. And it basically hits what I'm talking about in this video. It says, the Watch Dogs Legion audio team worldwide is already working with professional artists and composers on more than 140 licensed songs, which we had heard about, and an original score in the game. So that's the first point that they wanna make. Look, this is something separate. This is something small. This is not intended to be a driver of the value of the Watch Dogs Legion project. And so, all of this tizzy, all of this outrage is a little bit making a mountain out of a molehill because this was never designed to entirely populate the audio landscape of our video game. So that's the first point that they want to make. The second point, and I think this is the more important point, is that the additional contributions, no matter how large or small, from anyone within the hit record community are completely voluntary and are meant to give them a chance to have their own creative expressions included in the game. They lean on this term. They lean on this notion that it is completely voluntary. And we see this, again, quoted in the last article that I'm going to bring up here, uh, which is the Eurogamer response to the Ubisoft response, which is the notion that it is completely voluntary and whether or not that should absolve uh, Ubisoft of any issues here. Eurogamer comes to the conclusion that maybe it should, but maybe it shouldn't. A little mealy mouth, but that's all right. They don't want to necessarily pick a side on this. And I think that's fair because there's a lot of different interests. I think there's a lot of different sides of this discussion. And I think that's why it's a worthwhile virtual legality. But in this last paragraph, they say, from the wording of the post, it's clear Ubisoft views the initiative as a fun way for fans and non-professional musicians to interact with the game. And the game's creative director, Clint Hawking, also said in a video that he considers the project to be in the spirit of Watch Dogs Legion and the focus on community. But while the intentions may have been good, it still raises questions in the wider context of artists struggling to be paid fairly for their work and instead being promised exposure. Further, the decision to repeat the collaboration, particularly given the level of controversy it generated last year, is somewhat odd. Maybe this is a PR stunt that would have been best avoided entirely. So you see Eurogamer coming out and saying, well, if they're getting all this negative pushback, then maybe they should have just put it in a bucket, 
put it in the trash can and not done it at all. But I guess the question is, if you're somebody that was willing to give your submission to hit record, if you have already submitted to hit record, uh, if you are listening to this and have already submitted, please leave a comment in the in the comments of this YouTube video because I'd be really interested in hearing your experience and why you did that and, and what you are hoping to get out of that relationship. But if you did that, uh, then Eurogamer, Kotaku, Polygon, Games Daily Biz would all say, you shouldn't have been given the opportunity to do that. Uh, for any number of reasons, but the composers say because it drives our prices down, because other people say that you're being exploited and we hate to see that, but you've decided that it's okay for you and you shouldn't have been allowed to do that. And if you've followed this channel at all, if you talked, if you followed the videos that I did talking to Accursed Farms about whether or not games as a service is fraud, and I talked about voluntary contractual transactions and whether or not somebody should be allowed to purchase a game as a service like The Division 2 or like Destiny 2 if they know it could go away in five years or seven years or two years, uh, and whether or not that should be a prohibited activity or not, I'm always going to come out on the side of everybody should be allowed to enter into the contracts that they want to enter into. I think there's no problem with having these kinds of articles, having these kinds of comments that say, hey, that's a crappy contract. God knows in virtual legality, I have looked at terms and conditions and contracts and publisher and developer activities. You know it if you follow this channel where I have said that is a bad thing. You should not enter into this contract. If you choose to do so, you should do it with your eyes wide open that this is going to go wrong or could possibly go wrong. Hey, the last video I did was on a Kickstarter terms that was basically about hey, you're not going to get any promises about what you could potentially get out of this Kickstarter. So as long as you do that with eyes wide open, then that's fine. But this is a bad contract. And if we were in a commercial context, and if I was talking to a client about what these contract terms said, I would look to see them revised. I would negotiate these terms. I wouldn't recommend for my client to enter into that contract. But I'll tell you what, my clients overrule me all the time. They say, you know what? I'm okay with that risk. I'm okay with that possibility. I trust this guy or I don't trust him, but I think we're going to be fine for this short period of time. And I say, okay, as long as you are eyes wide open, we've had this conversation. You understand what this term says. You understand what the possible risks of loss are. I think it's entirely within your purview to decide what's acceptable to you and what's not. And that's what I see happening here. I don't see exploitation. I see folks like the person that was quoted in the Kotaku article making a decision on their own about what works for them, whether selling their services for $1,000 or $500 or $2,000 in this case works for them. And I see other folks in the industry already justifiably saying, man, that's going to depress our prices. If this becomes a common market situation, that's going to depress my ability to earn money in this market. And so I'm going to speak out against it. I think both sides are entirely within their purview to talk about what they're talking about in the way that they're talking about it. But I really do think that those voices that Kotaku, to their credit, gives a presence to, those people that are saying, this was right for me, that's why I did it, that probably should be presented a little bit more fulsomely in the games journalism media at large. That that voice that says, hey, I wanted to do this, I did it, I'm okay with the money I got, Ubisoft is okay with what I got to them, probably should be presented a bit more prominently. However, I understand how the internet works. I understand how on my YouTube channel, if I do something that is about outrage, that is about some kind of controversy that is spinning around the internet, 
a little bit like this one, to be honest, then that's likely to get more clicks than a deep dive into CDA section 230 that I did last week or into something else that is kind of tangentially related to something more pop culture affiliated. So I understand how this works and I understand why these articles are the way they are. I think everybody that I've quoted here did a good job of summarizing what they're seeing on social media. Uh, but I do think that Ubisoft uh, doing this for $20,000, getting 10 songs out of what looks to be 150 with an additional score on top uh, is not a terribly big deal, is probably not going to depress the ability of composers to go get their work sold to developers in the video game industry and likewise. That said, I totally understand exactly why they're saying what they're saying. With all that being said, as part of the Ubisoft hit record concept, I do think it's important to kind of note what we talked about at the top of this video, and that's what's happening in the rest of the video game industry. And we've got here Super Mario Maker 2, which has a meta score of 88, and I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic game. I've loved making levels uh, with my daughters. I've had a lot of fun with it, uh, but it's important to note that it's a game where the, the users are essentially making all the content for Nintendo for free. IGN, which we just saw quoted as talking about the specific issue and the exploitation or prospective exploitation of hit record contributors to Watch Dogs Legions, has given this game a 95. Super Mario Maker 2 is an accessible game design tool and the most accessible game design tool ever created. And that core is just one part of a greater whole. I spent hours building levels, testing them, and starting over again. He spent hours making things for a Nintendo product to get it out there, to get what we would consider in the larger world exposure. That's the real negative term that's used in all of these articles that these people are going and putting things out on spec or going out and putting them out for exposure to try to get someone to notice the fact that they can make good levels or that they can make uh, good uh, art if you're in dreams or something else. And that's what Mario Maker 2 is, but it gets all these high ratings because it's beloved. And I think part of that is that video games industry in general sees Nintendo as a good actor, as a good faith actor, as someone to be backed and supported. And Ubisoft and Activision and Electronic Arts and to some extent Microsoft and Sony are publishers that need to have their uh, noses hit with a newspaper from time to time because they are exploiting people and because they're bad actors. Uh, and I'm not so sure that that's entirely the case. But it's worth noting because Super Mario Maker 2 did get all these great scores, did get all these uh, plaudits from all these various review sources, including IGN, including some of the people that we've quoted in this video today. And the plain fact of the matter is Mario Maker 2 is a much worse situation for someone that's trying to make creative things and have them be out there. We've got here this final article that we're going to quote in this video that's a Polygon article that went live yesterday that says, Nintendo deletes level from top Mario Maker 2 player for mysterious reasons. What's going on here? And I'll link this in the description, but this is an article that basically says that Grand Pooh Bear, who's one of the prominent speedrunners in the Mario Maker universe, had a major level of his deleted and couldn't get a reason for why other than the fact that it was quote-unquote inappropriate. And he had previously had all his levels deleted in the original Mario Maker and didn't get great answers for why that happened either. Here's someone that is literally trying to make their career, trying to make their name on YouTube and elsewhere by making Mario Maker levels in an environment that is entirely controlled by a third party. And yet, I don't see any of these kind of outrage articles here. In fact, this article doesn't even get to the kind of outrage point that some of the Ubisoft stuff that we talked about did. This basically just says, I wonder why Nintendo did that. And points it out for good reason, because it's a very unusual thing for Nintendo to do. But it's worthwhile to note 
that Mario Maker 2 and Dreams and Little Big Planet and all these kind of creation games exist entirely at the largesse of the maker of whatever that platform is. In this case, Nintendo. And so, yeah, if I'm advising a client as to whether they or not they should make their career entirely in Mario Maker 2, I would advise against it because Nintendo can act arbitrarily and capriciously within their terms and conditions and can eliminate things for whatever reason and tell you nothing about why it eliminated them. And then you're just out of luck. Now, you can make a number of YouTube videos and maybe get in Polygon for having that happen to you, but it doesn't leave you with that 100 hours that you spent building the level back in your life or anything like that. And so... I guess the question once again comes down to what we asked in the middle of this video and podcast, which is, would these folks really have preferred a Mario Maker 2 setup? Would they really have preferred somebody having to give their art for free? That Ubisoft had essentially just had a contest that said, get your music in Watch Dogs Legion. I don't think they would. I don't think they would have liked that better. And I think $2,000, as de minimis as it might be, is a better solution than just asking for this stuff for free. And so I look at that and say... Okay, it might not be a number that you would have given your art to. I presume that you didn't give your art to hit record to try to get that $2,000. But your decision might not be the same as Bob or Mary's or Jennifer's or someone else. And Bob and Mary and Jennifer should have the right to give their music to Ubisoft for $2,000 if they think that's a good deal. That's essentially the right that we all have. That's the ability to contract that we all have within ourselves. And while I can understand being against that, I don't think anybody wants to have this stuff for free. And $2,000 is a pretty good starting point. That being said, I can see both sides of it, and that's why virtual legality is what it is. And that's why if you go and you hire a lawyer to talk about your contracts or whatever your specific legal issue is, a lot of the answers come down to, it depends. Uh, and that's the, that's the legal motto. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of virtual legality. If you like this, please do like, please subscribe to this channel. We're talking about these things all the time. Earlier this week, we talked about the fact that Kickstarter kicked a fully funded campaign off their site uh, with... Very little explanation, but we talk about it at length in virtual legality, and I think you'll enjoy that one. And we've talked about social media terms and conditions and other things, which you can see in the upload bar here. And I highly recommend you check them out. Otherwise, if you thought this video was interesting, or if you think this podcast is interesting, please do share it around. I can't get to everywhere on the internet, and I really do get good engagement from these videos appearing in various places on Reddit and Reset Era and NeoGAF and elsewhere. And so if you did like this and you think somebody would find it interesting, please do share it. Otherwise, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you caught this on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And please do review it on the podcast service you listen to it on. That helps us get exposure there as well. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. <laughs>